Right, good morning. Great to be back here with you. I have to start with two apologies this morning. The first is Anthea is not here with me, and she's uh, very sad about that, but um, we had our COVID injection yesterday, and she's reacted a bit badly to it, I'm afraid. She was fine until last night, and then suddenly it hit her. <gasps> and uh, yeah, she's not too good this morning, so she's decided to stay at home and listen to the Belmont service instead, which is far inferior, but there you go. Um, the other apology is just that uh, my computer is similarly having problems, and we've managed to get it into your system, thanks to John at the back there, but the fonts are all wrong, so sorry, it's not quite as impressive as it's supposed to be. You have to put up with that. Anyway, let's read the Bible together. Acts chapter 14. This morning, we have only seven verses to look at, so <laughs> there we go. Uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 1, finishing the, the, the story that we, well, not finishing, taking the next stage in the story that we looked at last week. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. That's our reading. Not a lot there, but let's see where we're going from here. If we can just get the uh, PowerPoint going, John, that would be brilliant. Excellent. And uh, the next slide, please. <laughs> we Again, we don't have a clicker this morning, so I'm going to work him hard at the back there and uh, sort of next, 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 and all the rest of it. You remember, the story starts with Paul and Barnabas going on a missionary journey. We saw this slide last week. They left Antioch in Syria, went to Cyprus, did various things there, and then came on to Pamphylia on the mainland, the south of what is now Turkey. And from there, uh, next one, you remember, they went up the Via Sebasti, the great Roman road, up to Antioch of Pisidia. We reckon that had something to do with Paul having malaria. He wasn't feeling too good, and so to get away from the seacoast, up into the highlands was a good idea. And they ended up in Antioch, and we saw last week how lots of people became Christians there, but persecution started, and they had to move on. So next one. And so they went on to a place called Iconium, and that's what we've just read about uh, now. As we saw in the reading a few minutes ago, uh, they had problems there too, so they went on to another place called Lystra, a little bit further south, and uh, you'll get catch up with that eventually as the story goes through. After that, they ended up in Derby. So three towns fairly close together, I guess. Iconium to Lystra is, is um, about uh, 40, 50 miles, and then Derby's about 15 miles on from that. So this um, is where Iconium is. If we put the little uh, circle up on it, John, the next one, that's it. That's Iconium there. And one thing you might just notice from this Google map is that uh, to the left-hand side of it, you've got some hills, which are pretty high. The highest peaks are about 5,000 feet. And over on the right, by contrast, you've got a big green area, one of the most fertile plains in the whole of Turkey. And this is one of the reasons why, by the way, that other circle up the top there, that is Yelvac today, but that was Antioch in Pisidia when Paul was there. So that's where he's come, um, about 65 miles from Antioch down to Iconium to get away from the persecution in Antioch. And uh, he's come to one of the best places in Turkey. 
It was a very fertile place, as I say. From the hills, springs came uh, hurtling down onto the plain, uh, watering and irrigating everywhere, and it was a tremendous place for produce and, uh, and all the rest of it. Now, it wasn't a great place to uh, build a, a garrison or a citadel or anything like that because it was completely flat, a bit like Thyatira that we were speaking about in the evening last week. And uh, it was a great place, though, for merchants to come to, and so it became a big trading center. I think the next one... We've got some of the remains left from Iconium. Uh, nowadays, this is all we've got left. It's not an awful lot of it left, to be quite honest, because nothing historic really much happened there. It was just a trading center and quite an important one. Next one is uh, uh, even more inspiring, isn't it? A few blocks lying in the countryside. This is what it looks like nowadays. It's the city of Konya in Turkey nowadays, and it's full of uh, shopping centers and, in this case, Christmas trees and things like that. It's um, uh, still a trade center because it's in a good place for people to come to and go from. And so it was quite a bustling city, just rising to importance when Paul and Barnabas actually went there. And uh, as you remember from last week, they moved on because there was trouble in Antioch, in Pisidia, and they came to Iconium. And uh, in these seven verses, I think we've got half a dozen things mentioned. Next one, please, which uh, uh, we need to look at this morning. Let's just look at the six very quickly. The first one is, next one. Thank you. Oh, no, no, oh, no. Have we got more words on there? No, they've all disappeared, have they? Yeah, that's better. Yep, they went straight to the synagogue when they got there. That was where they started work. The second one, they preached irresistibly and boldly. It says that they preached, they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. We'll have a look at that in a moment. Third, they were opposed once again. Trouble started pretty quickly. People were jealous. People refused to believe. And so, once again, they found themselves in the soup. Fourth one, they stayed around for a long time. You might think, mightn't you, that if trouble starts again, you'd move on. And you might think that verse 3 would say, uh, they poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas got out of there fast. Hmm, doesn't say that. It says, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. The trouble was rising, but they hung around. We'll do, look at that one too. The fifth thing is, they performed signs and wonders. God uh, uh, enabled them to do miraculous signs and wonders and confirmed the message of his grace by the things that they did. So that's five. The final one is this. They left. <laughs> they moved on when trouble started, and uh, it was only for the moment because they very much wanted to come back. One of the reasons they went on to Lystra and Derby is they were still in the same neighborhood. And they knew if they hung around there for a while, the trouble would die down, new magistrates would be appointed, because in Iconium they changed the magistrates every year, and then they could go back in again without any risk of going back into prison. So, those are the six things we're going to look at. Let's look at the first one now. They went straight to the synagogue when they got there. Now, you might be surprised at that, about that, because the end of chapter 13 makes it sound as if they've had it with the Jews. Uh, verse 46 in, in, in uh, Antioch, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. And so they actually shake off the dust of their feet in protest and go on to Iconium. And you might think, oh, there you are, you see. <laughs> they're finished with the Jews, they've fallen out with them, there's no way they're going to go to the synagogue in Iconium. And yet when you get there, it's the first place they go to. Why is that? Well, it's because they recognized, I think, that the, the people who went to a synagogue were more likely to respond to the gospel because they knew the Bible stories. They understood it. And they knew that in the synagogue, there weren't just Jewish people. 
All over the ancient world at that point, there were lots of people who weren't Jewish, but nonetheless went to the synagogue every Sabbath day because they were fed up with the Roman ideas about gods and the Greek myths, and they didn't find them convincing. They believed there was one God who was in charge of everything, and what the Jews believed seemed a lot more simple and a lot less complicated than the stuff they'd been brought up on. They were also uh, keen on the, the, the moral lives that the Bible taught Jewish people to live. They didn't always live up to it, but at least they had clear ideas about the way you should behave. And so it was a very attractive thing. And there were lots of Gentiles who were coming to the synagogue week by week. That didn't mean they were becoming Jews. <laughs> because many of them were uh, what were called God-fearers. People who got a certain way into Judaism, then stopped. There were three big problems for them. Number one was circumcision, which is pretty painful. We won't go into that. <laughs> the second thing was the Sabbath every week. The people in, in Roman society used to think that uh, taking one day off in seven was just sheer idleness. It was laziness. And some of the, the, the Roman writers, like Horace, uh, uh, talked about the Jews doing that. So if you'd taken one day off, people would think you were losing it a bit. The third thing was the Jewish diet, the things you could and couldn't eat. And so many people who liked Judaism and were attracted by it would go to the synagogue and they'd kind of half get involved, but they wouldn't become proselytes, which means you do the circumcision bit and you start living by all the Jewish rules. They wouldn't get that far. And Paul and Barnabas realized that if you can get to those people, they are more likely to understand and respond than anybody else on the planet. I mean, you see that in the next town they go to, don't you? Because they move on to Lystra, and there a miracle happens, and immediately a bunch of pagan people who've never really thought about Jewish religion talk, say, whoa, look, these two guys, they've made somebody well again. They must be gods. And they start worshipping Paul and Barnabas, which leads to some pretty unfortunate incidents. So people who understand are the first people to go to. I think there are three things that come out of this. Number one, start with those who will understand. If you're trying to explain your faith to people, if you want people to become Christians, begin with those who already have some kind of understanding and attraction towards it. Don't bang your head against a brick wall. Go to people who show some kind of interest, in interest to start with. That was how those first missionaries did it. It's how missionaries have done it ever since. But there's more than that. Second, never write off people who don't look likely. Because sometimes you will find the people who become Christians are the last people you expect. So don't confine yourself to Jews and Jewish people or whatever it is, whoever it is in Paynton who's more likely to respond. Don't just go for them. The gospel applies to everybody. And sometimes people you wouldn't expect to will respond. I was just thinking on the way down this morning about a mission I once did in a school in Swindon. And uh, I, had, I, I did a weekend for uh, some of the young people uh, in the church that was sponsoring this mission just before the mission started. And it was great because over that weekend, uh, about 10 to 20 of them actually came to faith. They'd been coming to the youth group for a while, but they'd never become Christians. And it was dead easy because they were ready. They were really ready for it. And you could see that. And that was brilliant. Then we started the mission week in the school. And I did a day of lessons in the school. We did some assemblies and things like that. And in the evening, we ran a coffee bar. We had a band that was playing, and uh, we started off with some sort of silly games, you know, throwing Rice Krispies and shaving foam around, very messy. At which point, I decided I was going to take um, a strategic retreat and go into the back room and just get things ready for later on. 
I mean, I've been covered in Rice Krispies too many times. And I, w I was through there just getting things together, and suddenly there was a, a knock on the door, and this girl came through. I said, uh, yep, um, what can I do for you? Uh, do you want the toilet? It's just that way. And she said, no, I want to become a Christian. I said, you can't. <laughs> we haven't told you anything yet. Listen, if you think becoming a Christian is about flinging around Rice Krispies and shaving foam, uh, there's a bit more to it than that. And she said, no, I really want to become a Christian. And I said, do you understand what being a Christian is? And she told me, yeah, you're right, you've got it. Okay, you want to become a, why do you want to become a Christian? She said, well, my friend told me all about it. I said, who's your friend? And she said, Julie. Julie, at that point, had been a Christian for just over 24 hours. <laughs> Fantastic. But she'd got it through so effectively to her friend at school that she was ready. So I said, okay, let's pray together. She said, uh -uh, no, I want to do this by myself, if you don't mind. So I said, oh, all right, fine. And she prayed. And you wouldn't say it was a very theological prayer, but it was, it, it was earnest. It was real. And uh, at the end, she said, amen. So is that it? Am I a Christian now? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and I was not expecting anything like that to happen before we'd even got to anything serious on that first evening. So don't write off people who don't look rightly because you will find that sometimes they're the first people to respond. Third thing, though, that emerges from this, I think, is never give up on people. Sometimes people will not respond straight away because they haven't understood. It's just not the time for them yet. And you just need to keep the door open for the future. Never think, oh, they haven't decided, so forget them. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, used to carry around in his pocket a list of 100 friends. He put this list together when he first became a Christian. He thought to himself, how many friends have I got whom I want to find Jesus? And he narrowed the list down to 100. He had a lot of friends. And he carried that list around with him for the rest of his life and prayed for those people. And every time one of them became a Christian, they got crossed off the list. <laughs> I mean, I think he still prayed for them, but in a different way. And by the time D.L. Moody died, 96 of those names had been crossed off the list. You know what happened to the other four? They became Christians at his funeral. <laughs> Don't give up on people. Keep going. So that's the first thing. They went straight to the synagogue. Second point is this. Uh, go on, thank you. Second point is, that's okay. They preached irresistibly and boldly. They didn't uh, pull any punches they said clearly what they were there for. And that's important, isn't it? They, right from the start, they nailed their colors to the mast. Sometimes, you know, in a society which is very skeptical about Christianity, we can back out a little bit from talking too readily about Jesus. But, you know, that just makes people think we're ashamed of it. And three points once again here. The first one is this. Grace and tact don't mean cowardice. Sometimes we think, well... I won't just say anything just yet because you need to work around to this. I remember back in the, in the 70s when I started in, in uh, youth evangelism, we had a lot of Christian bands around, and they were evangelists. They went out there, they played their music, but they said quite clearly why they were in the business. It wasn't just music, it was about Jesus. And then we started getting more people who were attracted into this ministry who started saying, well, you know, I'm just an artist who happens to be a Christian. And you listen to a whole evening of their music and you wouldn't know they were Christians at the end of it because, you know, they, they, they thought, well, I'll communicate by some kind of osmosis here. People will get it somehow. They don't get it. You've got to speak clean, clearly and plainly. And there are too many of us who are not prepared to speak openly about what we really believe. 
partly because we're scared. And just to be gracious to people, not to hit them over the head, is good. To show tact and wait for the right moment is good. But that doesn't mean cowardice. Second thing, though, boldness doesn't mean rudeness or insensitivity either. It doesn't mean you've got to bash people over the head with the Bible, back them into a corner every opportunity. You've got to wait until the time is right for them. And sometimes when you give people a bit of space, that can be much more useful than just going straight in and bulldozing them. How are you a Christian? Have you ever been saved? Now you've got to do it. Why don't you pray with me right now? You know, that kind of pressure technique is not often very, very, very useful. Boldness doesn't mean rudeness or insensitivity. And sometimes Christians can be. One of the most effective um, personal evangelists in America a few years ago was a guy called Joseph Aldrich. And uh, he lived in the community where everybody knew he was a Christian. Uh, he nailed his colors to the mast, but he um, gave people lots of space. Whenever somebody new moved into his small town, he'd go and see them and try to help them move in and make things good for them. He'd just known to everybody. And he would always say, as he was helping them, at one of the, uh, sometime, I would like to tell you the four facts that have changed my life. And the people think, ah, so that's why he's being friendly. He's got something he wants to sell me. Okay, tell me now. Let's get it over with. And he'd stun them by saying, uh, no, no, you're not ready yet. When you're ready, I'll tell you. But you're not ready yet. And that would annoy them. And so, you know, for the next few weeks, he'd keep on dropping into the conversation. You're almost ready to hear those four facts. But um, nah, not quite, not yet. And he says, you know, in the end, he'd had people ring him up in the middle of the night saying, Joe, you've got to come around right now and tell me what those four facts are. At which point, they're ready. <laughs> they want to hear the gospel. And it's all because, you know, he gave them time and space to get to know him, to see the reality of the faith in him, and then tell them the story. So boldness doesn't mean rudeness or insensitivity. The third point on this one is simply this. Sometimes people just aren't ready to listen. You've got to get to them at the right moment. And so that doesn't give you an excuse for just backing out of it all the time. Well, no, it's not right yet. No, well, maybe in five years' time or whatever. But it does mean that you've got to be prepared to give people the time and the space they need to understand what's going on, especially in our world right now, where Christianity has been has had such a hostile press over the last 20 years from the new atheists. Lots of people have very confused ideas about what Christians actually believe and why. And you've got to give them time to see it in action sometimes, to understand what's there in your life before they want to listen to anything you've got to say. So Paul and Barnabas went in, they preached irresistibly and boldly, but they also hung around, as we saw earlier on. They didn't just preach and move on. Right, okay, fair enough. Do I see a hand? Thank you, God bless you. Right, we're off to Lystra. It wasn't like that. They were hanging about as long as necessary so that people would hear. Next point, next point. They were opposed once again. Not surprisingly, they knew they were going to get this all over the ancient world. And sure enough, as soon as lots of people started responding, once again, they were in trouble. Three points out of this. First one, suffering is part of discipleship. You find in 2 Timothy, uh, a letter that Paul writes towards the end of his life, in chapter 3, he writes to Timothy, who came from Lystra, one of these three towns. And he says, look, you've got to suffer because that's what being a Christian is all about. Everybody has that as part of the job description. 
And uh, he said to Timothy this, knowing that he wasn't going to be writing to him again. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? Because Timothy had been there. He'd been watching the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And then Paul says this, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're living in a world system that doesn't like Christians particularly. Now, we're fortunate if we live in this country. The persecution you experience is likely to be pretty mild. Just a bit of scorn. People will patronize you. People will think you're a religious freak or a nutcase of some kind. But for all that, it's persecution. And everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus is going to be persecuted by a world which has a system which works completely in the opposite way. And so that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is this. God prepares you for whatever you have to face. If you look at the way that the pressure had stepped up on Paul and Barnabas over these last few encounters, you can see how God is getting them ready for Lystra. When Paul's going to be stoned and left for dead. And for Philippi, where he's going to be thrown into prison. And for the big persecutions that are going to come later on. And God doesn't just pitchfork us right into the midst of it. Right, here you are. Really hot, strong persecution. Now let's just see how you cope. No, he prepares us for it bit by bit. So in Cyprus, the persecution came just from one man. The Jewish um, magician who tried to misrepresent them to Sergius Paulus. And that was quite an easy one. God worked a miracle and he was struck blind. In Antioch and Pisidia, it was a bit more difficult. In Iconium, it's more difficult yet because both the Jews and the Gentiles, not just the Jewish people, but some of the Gentiles as well, have a go at, uh, at Paul and Barnabas. And in Lystra, it's going to get even tougher. And you can see how the persecution grows bit by bit as time goes on. God gives us what we're ready for. He doesn't throw us into situations where we're not equipped. And whatever God puts you into, he doesn't abandon you there. And gradually he trains you for more and more adventures for him as time goes by. And that's what you see happening to Paul and Barnabas in Iconium. A lot more we could say about that. But let's look at the third one. The third one is this. Sacrifices for Jesus are never pointless. Yes, you'll encounter opposition. Yes, you'll have times when you think, has any of this been worthwhile? But sacrifices that you make for Jesus are never pointless. It says right at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, you know that big chapter about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians? Don't give up. Don't be weary in well-doing because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And everything you do for him, everything you suffer for him, is not just pointless, gratuitous suffering. It's, it will lead somewhere. And you might not see the end of it. I'm always challenged by the story of that Welsh young man who went as a missionary uh, to Korea at a time when Korea, the hermit kingdom, was closed to all Westerners. And he managed to get himself up the river on an American trading vessel, which wasn't supposed to be there, and was attacked by the Koreans. And he took hundreds of Bibles with him. And he got off as, as, as uh, the boat was, was attacked. And on, on the sands, he just started handing out Bibles, saying, read it, good book, you've got to read this. He lasted about three minutes before he was clubbed down and killed. But you know what happened? 
One of those books was taken by somebody who was there and used to wallpaper his house. <laughs> and those pages from the Bible were all over his house. And people would come in from the neighborhood just to read the wallpaper. And out of that, people started understanding what the gospel was all about. And the man who'd clubbed him down and killed him felt so remorseful that he'd killed a good man that he started looking at what this man believed and why he'd come to Korea. And he became a Christian. And the church started to grow in Korea without any missionaries there, just because one young Welshman had laid down his life on the sand. And you might have thought, what was the point? What did he achieve? As soon as he got to Korea, he was killed. End of story. Pointless suffering. Nothing you do for the sake of Christ is lost. Okay, we'd better move on. They were opposed once again. What happened after that? Well, they stayed around for a long time. They didn't think, oh, it's getting a bit hot here. We'd better get out of town while we can still get out. They were bold. They stayed around and they talked to people. Three points about this one. First of all, evangelism isn't a quick fix. Sometimes it takes a long time to get through the, the debris of, of arguments and, 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 and misapprehensions and misconceptions and misunderstandings that clogs up people's brains. Sometimes it takes ages before they see what's going on. I remember leading a student mission in Poland once where uh, we did a presentation every evening and then because this is Poland in the communist years, they had nothing else to do, these students. So after we'd done our little nice meeting, they all sat down to discuss with us for hours and hours and hours everything we'd said. <laughs> and it went on all for hours every night. I remember one girl called Teresa who was there. And Teresa uh, had never really understood what the gospel is. Uh, and we tried to explain to her night by night how you can become a Christian. She'd say, yeah, but what have we got to do? And we'd say, Teresa, there is nothing to do. It's God's free gift. You simply have to accept it for yourself. And she'd say, yeah, but suppose I live a good life for three weeks. No, no, that won't help. What you've got to do is just accept God's gift for yourself. And I always remember this going on night after night, and every night you saw Teresa, she still wouldn't understand it, and we were just despairing of her ever getting the point. Then on the very last night of the mission, we were having one of our interminable conversations with Teresa, and suddenly she said, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me see. You're saying... That if I want to become a Christian, I don't have to do anything. Yes, Teresa. Just accept it. Yes, Teresa. Because it's a free gift from God. Yes, Teresa. So Jesus has done it all. I don't have anything to do. Yes, Teresa. And she said, ah. <laughs> and we thought, she is a bright girl. She's a top student. Why has it taken a week to get to this point? And the simple answer was, sometimes... It takes people a long time to work through it. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. But she got there, she became a Christian, and it was brilliant. You've got to give people time. Evangelism is a quick fix. Second, would you have enough to say to meet people's needs? Suppose you were Paul or Barnabas in that situation, and you have got to sit down and work through it with people. Would you be able to do it? Have you got enough information to help people sort through the problems in their minds. I used to run a group at Belmont. I, I don't do it anymore. Somebody else does it. Um, for people who wanted to become Christians, a bit like your uh, Christianity Explored groups. And it was interesting. When I got a team together to help me, lots of people would be very, very nervous. I've not been a Christian very long. I don't know if I understand this stuff. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a historian. I don't know what I should be saying here. And, you know, halfway into the first evening, they would just relax. Because they'd start to realize that the questions that people had were just simple ones. 
And although their minds were twisted and complicated, it, it was simply a case of, of using what you had, what you already knew, to untwist those complications gently and help them see the challenge of the gospel as it was. And we need to be ready for that, willing to take on the questions and the complications that people get their minds twisted up with and just gradually untangle them until they, they, they get the point. Third, third point here, though. You may not see a result in every single case of people you talk to, but your work still isn't wasted. You know, I used to find as an evangelist that when people became Christians, I'd think, <laughs> wonderful, God has worked through me again. Oh, it's wonderful to be used by the Lord in this way. And then you say to people, okay, so um, this is the first time you ever heard the gospel. No, no, no. And he'd tell you about this friend he had at school. This preacher had come to morning assembly in the school once upon a time. This auntie who'd been praying for them for years and years. And you begin to realize you are just one cog in a massive, massive uh, machine that God has got together to bring this pe person to faith. And uh, you're only doing part of the job. One of my friends, an evangelist, used to say that evangelism is a continuum. And all you're called to do is move people along the continuum from where they are to where Jesus wants them to be. And sometimes you'll have the privilege of being at the end. So that shoom, you'll get them right there, right where they... Sometimes you're just moving them across a bit at a time. And God is reserving the honor of bringing them to faith for somebody else. But if you've moved people up, that's not failure. That's moving on. Well, we need to finish this. So let's, let's, let's uh, move on to the, the, the next point. And uh, John, next one. Uh, they performed signs and wonders. Now, you might think, wouldn't that be great, you know, if, if we were able just to do miracles? That would make it so easy. And uh, I'll bet Paul and Barnabas were thinking in Iconium, ah, yeah, well, if we'd only had a few of these miracles happening in uh, 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 Antioch, maybe they wouldn't have thrown us out so quickly. But, you know, you cannot rely on things like that. There was a, a, a belief a few years ago that some people had that uh, the gospel is not being preached fully unless it's word, works, and wonders. In other words, you preach the message, but you also do good things alongside it to show the gospel in practical action. No complaints about that. And there must also be miracles. I don't think there must be miracles. You look at what the disciples, the, the apostles do throughout the book of Acts. Sometimes there are miracles, sometimes there are not. And it's only when God grants the ability to do this and enables them to do it that those miracles actually happen. Now, you might ask some questions about this. We're nearly done, but uh, let's look at these three questions. First of all, why don't we see them today? And I think the answer is, well, miracles still happen. But they happen where they're necessary. They don't happen all the time. And I think in our society... Um, there are lots of reasons why miracles don't work quite as effectively as they do in some other places. And so I think there are places around the world where God's miracle-working power is much more evident than it is in the West. We have skeptical minds. We find other explanations for things. And that leads on to the second point. Second point, wouldn't they make life a lot easier? Not necessarily. You see, God sends signs of this kind when people are prepared to recognize them and respond to them. But you know that it's all too easy for people to see God doing something wonderful and find another explanation for it. Remember John chapter 9, the man born blind who becomes a Christian uh, and is healed. 
and the religious leaders, well, it becomes a Christian very early for that, but the religious leaders come to, Je come to him and say, give God the glory. We know that this man, this Jesus, is a sinner. And their minds are just completely closed. They can't deny a miracle's happened. They say, oh, it's God, but uh, this guy has nothing to do with it. And it's all too easy to explain away something fantastic and wonderful as coincidence or something that's been misinterpreted or whatever. Miracles don't necessarily convince people. Only when they're ready to receive what God is showing them in this kind of action. And the third question here is, why doesn't Luke tell us what actually happened? Signs and wonders. You say, okay, come on then, Luke. Tell us what happened. Was it people with paralyzed arms that were healed? Was it somebody who was made to walk again like in Lystra? Did you raise the dead? What happened? And Luke said, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Why? Because it's not important. He's not interested in just telling miracle stories. He sees those miracles as one of the tools that God uses, the signs of the apostles. But he doesn't need to tell you all about it on every occasion. Final thing. I think we're at the final point now, so don't lose hope. Here we go. You'll get your lunch, whatever. They left for the moment. You might think, well, you were just saying how bold they were. Why did they leave then? Just because there was trouble coming. Well, I think there were three good reasons why they left, at least three, and here they are. First, they left so that they could work elsewhere. You see, Paul and Barnabas were not trying to plant a church and set, settle down in the community where they would live for 70 or 80 years. They wanted to spread the message of the gospel all over the Roman world as fast as they possibly could. And that meant not staying in one place. It meant keeping on, moving on. So if there was pressure, if there was difficulty, that's okay. That was a sign that God wanted them somewhere else. But also, second, they left so that the new Christians would be unharmed. If they'd stayed there and met the trouble head on, well, already, as we see in those verses, the city was splitting into two, those who were for Paul and Barnabas and those who were against, and it would just have made the situation much, much worse. Paul was always very keen not to make trouble for those who had become Christians and would have to live there when he had gone. Do you remember Philippi, where Paul and Silas are put into prison, and then the magistrates realize there's been an awful mistake made, and they come to the prison and say, look, I'm sorry, we didn't realize you're a Roman citizen, and, and we put you in prison, which we're not supposed to do. I'll tell you what, can you, you know, you nice, kind Christian people, can you just leave town now and we won't say any more about it? And in what is possibly my favorite verse in the New Testament, it says, and Paul said to them, not likely. <laughs> and he said, no, what's going to happen is you're going to take us out of the city. You're going to lead us down the main street of the town in front of everybody else. You're going to shake our hands at the city gate, and then we're going to go. But we're going to leave as honored guests of the city, not as prisoners who just disappeared and uh, nobody knew where they'd gone. Why? Because Paul was leaving a church behind. And if they, they were seen by the locals as folks who belonged to a religious movement that had been started by a Roman citizen who was honored by the magistrates, that gives them a good start. If, on the other hand, they were just seen as people who, well, they're part of a cult that was started by this guy who was flung into prison, wasn't he? And we don't know what happened to him after that. That would be no use to them at all in the future. And so when they left a city, they left so that the new Christians would be unharmed, so they would have a chance of going on with the ministry. And the third and final thing is this. They left so that they could come back. They were committed to Iconium. And they came back shortly afterwards when it was safe to do so and strengthened the believers. They went back to Antioch. On their second missionary trip, they came back to Iconium. 
On their third missionary trip, they came back to Iconium. In the meantime, Paul wrote a letter called Galatians to churches in the area of Iconium. And they put as much care and as much effort into looking after those Christians as they possibly could. It wasn't just a case of preaching the message and then saying, right, that's it, see you in eternity. They were committed for time to come. And as I guess this church gets involved in evangelistic groups um, like uh, Discovering Christianity, um, you need to have that kind of spirit, don't you, towards the work that we're doing. The labor we do is not in vain in the Lord, but that labor needs to be committed. It needs to be ongoing. We need to stick with people until they find the truth and get beyond all their barriers and obstructions in the way. And that, I think, is what the story of Iconium shows us. We'll miss the last slide, John. Let's just pray together, and then we've got one more song to sing, I think. Heavenly Father, as we study the way that the Apostle Paul and uh, the Apostle Barnabas did it, it challenges us in lots of ways. We know that you've put us here so that we can share our faith with others. And we might not be traveling around Turkey getting stones thrown at us and things like that, but in our situation, the same principles apply. The same things have got to be true. And so we pray that you will help us to learn from the example set 2,000 years ago and be wise in our relationship with other people so that we can live effective, contagious lives and lead other people to understand the gospel. We ask it for your namesake. Amen.